Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We must eat from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When a woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I, I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not, not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me here with, with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not commanded you must not eat from it. Crushed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Amen. Yeah, give her a hand. That's a- it's a, it's a lot of work right there for sure. Uh, we've been saying that the book of Genesis is really important to look at because the book of Genesis, arguably more than any other book in the Bible, shows us, tells us who the person of God is. That's really important to see. And along the way, the Bible seeks to answer the biggest questions that the human heart has to offer, especially in the book of Genesis. And perhaps there's no bigger question to ask then. How did the world get to the way it's gotten? You look out of the world and you see all the stuff going on. You see things that are wrong, evil, hard, broken. You you ought to ask, you know, how did the world get the way it's gotten? Or a better way of putting it might be to ask, what's wrong with us? (laughs) What's wrong with us? What's wrong with humanity? Dr. Carl Minninger is a member of the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies, a psychologist, not a Christian. He studied the human mind for years, and near the end of his life, he wrote a book, and this was the title of the book. His book was called, Whatever Happened to Sin? That was the name of the book. In the book, acting the title, shocked a number of people, and in the book, he said this. He said, I call for a revival of the conscious sense of guilt and repentance, in short, He said, I call for a revival of sin. 
He goes on to say, what would be the good of that, you ask? Why do we need more breast beaters? Why not a no-fault theology with no one to blame? Well, the assumption that there is sin implies both the possibility and an obligation for intervention. We want to help others, ourselves, and hence sin, he writes, is the only hopeful view. When evil appears around us and no one is responsible, no one is guilty, no moral questions are asked, then there is, in short, nothing to do. So we sink to despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the consequence of my proposal would not be more depression, but less. Huh, about that. So what's wrong with us? Well, Dr. Meninger is saying, in a way, you want a better life? You want a better future? He's saying, you better recognize. (laughs) You better recognize what Genesis 3 has to say. You better recognize what Genesis has to say. Not just about you. Not just about me. But what Genesis 3 has to say about us. About humanity. About the world. And about how God plans to put it right. Let's take a look at Genesis 3 in four parts. We're going to look at this morning. At the sneer. At the shadow. At the scream. And finally, the seed. Here we go, number one. Let's take a look at the sneer. What do I mean by that? Look at chapter three, verse one. Here we go. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. So Christian thinkers, theologians have held for centuries that it's really Satan, God's adversary, who's using the serpent, using the animal for his own ends. And so, of course, right away, when you hear that, you think, okay, it's Satan speaking through the, the snake. You, you, the modern reader starts to ask all kind of questions, right? Like, how did Satan get in there? It's supposed to be a paradise, right? I mean, did someone forget to set like the devil trap? You know, how did he get in? And of course, the list of questions goes on. But if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, I hope you've heard that what has integrity when it comes to anything anybody writes, any text, any passage, when it comes to having integrity about what you write, it's important to ask the right questions. And the right question to ask is, well, what was in the mind of the author? What was in the mind of his audience? What was the point of the the author here? And that's what's fair to someone who writes anything. And that's what's fair to you. And so what the writer here is doing is primarily theology. He's giving us a story about not just you or me, but about us, about humanity. And so if, if you're asking, well, how did we get to where we are today now? you'll find good answers and probably learn a lot more than you can imagine. And so a final way of putting it would be, and here's a free Bible reading tip for all of you. When it comes to any passage in the Bible, here's your big idea. Your big idea is God always gives us what we need, but he may not give us what we want. God always gives us what we need, may not give us what we want. How many of you would like more than 28 chapters of Acts? Like, I like 29 through 72. Like, what happened to all those guys, right? Lost books of the Old Testament, more miracles of Jesus. I'd like more. God gives us what we need, not always what we want. And so if you come to this passage and you'll think, well, how has God given me what I need here to understand him and myself? Now we'll be on firm footing Bible reading lesson over. What do we need to know here? All right, here we go. That's the question. What do we need to know here that God's given us? First, we need to see that sin begins with a sneer. Sin begins with a sneer. Look at what the serpent said to the woman. He said, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
Now, you'll notice if you study this, you read a bunch of translations, they all kind of put it a different way. Here we get the word really. Another translation says actually. In the old King James, you know, King James, God rest his soul. The old King Jimmy, you know, he, he writes, half God said. Half God said. And the reason they're all so different is because they're trying to translate irony. And irony's tricky when you go from one language to the other. So let me give you my stab at it. What the serpent here is doing is something like this. Eve, God literally said you couldn't eat that. Huh, that's strange. How about that? God said that. Wow, that's interesting, huh? Now, now that's, that's what's happening. We just get the word actually as in God actually said that. Wow, yeah. Now, what's this showing us? Well, it shows us, first of all, that irony and humor are powerful weapons. They're powerful weapons. Uh, Kendrick Lamar, for example, rapper took the familiar... You guys laughing. People laugh first service, too. It's not supposed to be funny. I'll tell you when you're supposed to laugh, and that's not it. All right. Here we go. Was it because I said the word rapper? Was it because I said the word? All right, that could be it. Anyway, Sir Kendrick... Uh, recent song puts an ironic spin on the Beatitudes, this is my point, Beatitudes to make you even think harder about what they're saying. Matthew 5, you know, the Beatitudes, blessed are the, well, Kendrick Lamar writes, he says this, he says, blessed are the superstars, blessed are the bullies, blessed are the filthy rich, blessed are the arrogant, blessed are the liars, for the truth can be awkward. Oh, yeah, you're thinking about it harder, right? What's he doing? He's getting you to question values like money and power and arrogance. See, irony can be helpful, but irony, snark, cynicism, sneering all the way down are deadly because cynicism all the way down, irony all the way down are deadly because they question everything but themselves. They question everything but themselves. It sounds so powerful, right? Cynicism, oh, to be cynical, sneering, it sounds so powerful, so right. And people who, sound, uh, who sneer can be so sophisticated, right? Sounds so clever. And as someone who's done campus ministry, by the way, for more than a decade, it's my experience that sneering, more than real arguments about God or faith, are why students lose their faith. It's not science that gets students, it's the sneer. It's not science against us, it's the sneer. Sneering is so powerful, and let me show you how powerful it is, but why, if you'll question it back a bit, why it itself as a value falls apart. Case number one, Frederick Nietzsche. When Frederick Nietzsche, uh, the great you know, thinker, when he wanted to really up in Christianity, when he wanted to eviscerate it, pull the guts out of it, do you know what he did? He created something called the hermeneutics of suspicion. Hermeneutics of suspicion. It's a fancy way of saying he squints at everything. Squints at everything. Uh, he, he said this. He said, everyone is out for power. Everyone's out for power. Every truth claim you'll ever hear is just a grab for power. And Christianity is just a truth claim. So you can't trust it. Can't trust it. All truth claims are power plays, so you can't trust any of them. Now, that sounds so powerful, but that's not a real argument. It's just a sneer. It's just a sneer. Because if what Nietzsche's saying is true, well, you shouldn't trust him. He's making a truth claim about truth. And if you can't trust any truth claim, then you certainly can't and shouldn't trust his. 
Moving on. Here we go. Another case study. Sigmund Freud said that whatever anybody ever thinks about God is just twisted wish fulfillment. You had something wrong with your dad. You had some weird sexual thing with your mom. Awkward, right? So we shouldn't trust what anyone ever says to us about God because it's just twisted wish fulfillment. Oh, but hang on. Mr. Freud, Dr. Freud, aren't you talking to us about God? Yes, you are. Well, why wouldn't you? What you have to say be just twisted, wishful for What could be a greater wish than just to wish there's no God and therefore we can do whatever we want, right? If we can't trust what anyone says, well, we can't trust what you say, Dr. Freud. See, the problem with cynicism, irony, sneer, snark all the way down is that it never sneers at itself. Listen, do you know what Eve should have done? Here's what she should have said. I know it's like easy to say, right? Armchair quarterback, like thousands of years later, it would have saved us all a bunch of trouble, but here's what she should have said. She should have said, did God actually say? Well, did you actually say? Did God actually say? Huh? You're, you're questioning God? Huh? Didn't see that one coming. Satan, right? <laughs> nice legs, by the way. Oh, wait, you don't have any. All right, all right, that's good. See, what leads us to compromise, it's not really an argument, it's an atmosphere, right? An atmosphere that sneers and taking in entertainment, thinking, book, reading that just sneer and snark all the way down erodes what's good and true and right about us and the world. So when people ask you, maybe you're a student, maybe your coworker asks, you're, you, you really believe that? You're a Christian, you believe that? Listen, that's not an argument, That's not reasoning, that's not thinking, that's not philosophy or data, that's just a sneer. And here's what sneering is. In the end, it's the last resort of the heartbroken. The last resort of the heartbroken, here's what I mean. People tend to go towards that once they've been, their hearts have been broken. They think, I could never believe that. I could never trust anyone. And maybe that's you. And maybe you've arrived in that place, maybe in church today. Someone's invited you and you're cynical at everything I'm saying or someone's singing because somewhere along the line someone's told you or you've seen something in a church or with your parents that's caused you to believe you can't trust. I want to tell you, you ought to doubt your doubts. Be cynical perhaps about your cynicism. Sneer at the sneer, because if you did, it just may lead you out of that dark place and into hope. And wouldn't that be nice? Yes, <laughs> I think it would. See, when you question the sneer, it starts to fall apart. Number two, there's not just a sneer here. There's also a shadow. There's a shadow that falls across the passage. Let's see what it is. Verse four, Ser- serpent goes on. You will not certainly die, said the serpent, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So you gotta read it right. Now, do you notice what's being questioned here? Listen, what's being questioned here, the serpent never questions God's power, does he? He never questions God's uh, existence. He never says to Eve, oh, where did God go? Was he like busy making stuff? I don't see him. Can you see him with your own eyes? He must not be real. After all, no, he never questions God's power, his existence, his holiness, or his wisdom. What he does question, and this is so crucial to see, what the serpent questions to Eve, Adam, and all our hearts is God's love. God's love. He casts a shadow 
across the purity of God's motives and his heart. He's saying, Eve, oh, can you see? God's holding out on you. He knows that when you eat from it, you'll be like him. He's just trying to keep stuff from you. He doesn't really love you. Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, he put it like this. He said, the reason the mass of men distrust God and at the bottom dislike him is because they rather distrust his heart. I'd agree. Do you know the sin in your life? Yeah, the stuff you do. It's not necessarily evil at the root in a way. It's just a good thing used in a wrong way. Because you don't trust what God really says about it. You're not trusting God's heart. Think about it. What was wrong with the tree here? Nothing. Nothing wrong with the tree. Didn't have like evil juice in it, right? Doesn't, not poison fruit. There's no poison in the fruit. There was just poison in the word. See, Adam and Eve, they take a good thing, a tree, beautiful tree, made with beautiful fruit, made by God, and they use it in a wrong way because they don't trust his love. And whatever you're dealing with today, wherever there's sin, wherever you're falling apart, it's because you and I, we believe the same lie. We can't really trust what he said because he's not really loving. Do you know then what real right is? What real virtue is? Hear me. Real right, what's really right, is doing something just because God said so. All right. Now, some of you don't like it because your parents use that on you too many times growing up, right? Just doing something because God says so. And you know what? Why that's true? Here's why. You say, well, I don't like that because if I just do something because God just tells me to, it's just blind faith, man, and blind faith, blind obedience is dangerous. Now, that's cynicism all the way to the bottom, too. Well, that's, oh, wait, that's, I already did that point. All right. But listen, if you think that, if you think just obeying God because he said so is dangerous, or you've believed the serpent. Because when you do something just because God says so, you're now, you're doing what Eve didn't do, what Eve couldn't do. You're believing his heart towards you. You're believing that he loves you. He's loving that he is good towards you. Listen, if you're a parent, again, you know this has happened to you. You've had that moment where your child comes and they've asked for that thing that they certainly can't have now or maybe can't have ever, right? You know, like like the six-year-old who asked you to if they can drive your car. Imagine they came up to you. Mom, Dad, can I drive your car? It's got like a screen in it, right? It's my right as an American to have a screen in front of me, you know, 24-7. Sure, little Johnny, here are the keys. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. No. Is it loving to allow the six-year-old to drive? No, and he just might go to jail for doing so, right? So what do you you say to the six-year-old? Can the six-year-old even possibly comprehend what's on the highway? No, you say no, why? Trust me, trust me. And if the child does that, what does he show you? Or does she show you? They show you that they Trust your heart. They show you that they believe that you love them. Is that love based on blind faith alone? No, it's based on love. It's based on love. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great American theologian, he said, listen, there's a difference. We gotta get something straight. There's a difference between what's called common virtue and true virtue. Common virtue, the kind everybody has, is something basically that you do because it seems right to you and it makes sense. And up to a point, aren't you glad people have common virtue? Right, I am. But underneath all common virtue, he said, are two things, fear and pride. 
He said fear and pride are actually what motivate most people's actions. Let me show you what I mean. Fear. He says you do what's right only because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't. Hey, Fortune 500 company, why don't we cheat on what we do and cheat our employers and stakeholders? Well, we don't want to end up on a Wall Street Journal. Well, that's not really doing what's right because it's right. It's fear-based. Why do you remain faithful to your spouse? Is it because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't, what people will think about you? Well, that's not being really righteous. That's right. It's not really being faithful. It's being fearful. That's what's keeping your marriage together. How right, about this? Are you part of a, uh, say, a church, part of Mosaic? Do you volunteer or give here? Because, you know, you're not like those selfish people who would never volunteer to teach the kids. Do you give because you're not like those selfish people who won't lend a hand to help their church? Right? No. Do you do what you do because you're, you know, you're better than that? If you do, that's not really being principled. It's just being prideful. And when fear and pride are at the very center of your moral life, when fear and pride are what's nurturing the roots of your inner person, it's only a matter of time before the whole house of cards comes down. How could they have done that? That person asks. Wow. That's not like him, Mama says. That's not me, we say. Oh, yes, it was. It was actually nobody else. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a twin. It wasn't a clone. It was you. Your fear and your pride that just went away for the moment because your morality was inconvenient. You thought you wouldn't get caught, so you did whatever. Why? Because you didn't have love at the center. You had fear and pride. Not true virtue, doing something because God said so. Common virtue, the kind everybody operates on until it's inconvenient. And let me tell you, this is so depressing, but it's also hopeful in the end. Because at a real level, things done, which is most of our actions, by the way, that are done from fear and pride are sinful. They're rooted in sin. Can't believe I'm saying this in Austin, Texas. Rooted in sin. They, <coughs> excuse me. They perpetuate sin, but it's important to call it that, to name it that. Otherwise, like Dr. Menninger said, we've got no hope for what's wrong with us. And therefore, what it means to be a Christian, hear me, what it means to be someone who has a relationship with God is simply uh, to say, God, I'm going to do it Not because I got to understand it. Not because you have given me a reason that makes sense to my brain that is going to shrink and rot and crumble and die and turn to dust and probably betray me before my life's over. You say, God, I'm going to do it because I love you. And here's why that's crucial. Because whatever is done from love brings healing. Whatever is done from love brings healing. And therefore, when you begin to obey God just because he said so, you begin to bring healing healing into your life healing into your life let's resist the shadow across god's heart amen number three there's also the scream i know you're thinking man we've gone to the dark side today well in a way yes all right what happens now because adam and eve have done this again theologians call this the fall let me show you four consequences from this four ways the world is screaming out to be put right I'll go through them quickly. I'll put one and two together. First and second, we're separated now from God and separated from ourselves. This is crucial to grasp. When Adam and Eve are put out of the garden, you got to see it's just like a, like a physical representation of what's happened to them on the inside spiritually. It's a picture of where human beings are now in relationship to God. So I want you to hear this today. You 
are born separated from God. Your children are born. We say, oh, they're so innocent. (laughs) Naive, yes. Innocent, not so sure. Whatever. We're separated from God and ourselves. We're born apart from him. That's why the Bible says you must be born again, right? You were not born okay the way you are. You're born with something wrong with you. Now, the reason some of you don't like this, you're screaming on the inside. You're like, man, he told me I wasn't okay. Listen, it's because everything in our culture tries to convince us we're okay just the way we are. We sing songs. What's that James Blunt song? You're beautiful. You're beautiful. It's true. What I Christina Aguilera's got another version. Somebody else got another version. We have talk shows, rallies where people tell us you're fine just the way you are. But all that is, is a kind of psychological fig leaf. Fig leaf. Because what do Adam and Eve do? Because, because they know something is wrong with them, they reach for fig leaves to cover up their persons. Listen, if there were nothing wrong with you, why would you have to be told there's nothing wrong with you? Why don't you naturally know there's nothing wrong with me? I mean, I don't go around thinking, what's wrong with my kidneys today? You know, what's wrong with my little toenail? No, because I only think that if there's something wrong. And if all of humanity is asking the same question, what's wrong with me? Why do I do that? Why do I always think that? It's because we've all got the same thing wrong with us. A cosmic identity problem. Born separated from God. And until that gets addressed, whoo, we just all reach for some kind of fig leaf. Third now, we're also separated, it gets worse before it gets better, separated from each other. And specifically here, this shows us how the genders get broken and in need of healing. Because when God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, that's not an affirmation. That's not an encouragement. It's an acknowledgement of the fall, showing us a lot. And first of all, though, this shows us, matter of fact, that there are gender differences. It doesn't list them all the way to the bottom. You've got to be careful so when someone starts doing that. But this shows us there are real gender differences, that God made men and women differently, because if there were no inherent gender differences, if Adam and Eve were just the same gender, when they fell, when they were broken, they would have broken identically, but they don't. They weren't. They were broken differently. And on one hand, now, this is telling us, God's telling us, because of this, that the tendency of men is to make an idol out of power, out of power, especially in relationships with women. Sin makes men tend to dominate women. One of the effects of sin and the emptiness that it brings is to cause men to now try to dominate women. And had in our culture, born out in spades. Come on, that's what a lot of the, the Me Too is about, right? Bringing out all that to light in, in Michigan State University in, in the news this week. Because where you have cultures that don't honor women, promote them in leadership and influence, you're going to find space for the abuse of women. That's history. And so if you kind of lean a little more liberal here and you're suspicious of the Bible, you think it promotes patriarchy, you ought to think again. Or on the other hand, you kind of lean the other direction and you think that the Bible promotes patriarchy and you kind of like it? You ought to think again. But on the other hand, what this is also showing us is that women tend to make an idol 
not a power, but of the relationship itself. The tendency will be to think if I just have him, right? If I can just get his attention, if my marriage is just better, if he'll just love me more, if I'm loved by him, everything is going to be okay. And this shows up through being possibly manipulative, sneaky, deceptive, or sometimes in a marriage going the other way, being cold and distant because now you can't handle reality. Desire for it is so great. It pushes you that direction. So what happens when you put two genders together with these, these trends toward brokenness? What happens? Woo. You get the state of the world. State of the world. And it ought to be different in the church, oughtn't it? Ought to. Fourth, we're separated. One more separation here. From creation itself. God, self, others, creation. Uh, how many of you guys, maybe you grew up reading Irma Bombeck, you know that name? Great uh, columnist, two of you, fantastic, great. It's gonna be a little education for you. Uh, Irma Bombeck, great humorist, columnist. She was a mom, housewife, and great writer. And she wrote this column, funny column, uh, about dirt, about dirt. She said, all my life is a struggle against dirt. There's dirt in the rug. There's dirt in the diaper. There's dirt in the carpet. Dirt in the counter. Dirt in the furniture. Dirt in the car. She said, all my life is a fight against dirt. And do you know, she asked, what I get at the end for all of it when I die? <laughs> Six feet of dirt. <clears throat> now that's Genesis 3, if I've ever heard it put well, yeah. John Stackhouse, a Christian ethicist, wrote this in his book, Making the Best of It. He wrote, the world since Genesis 3 is generally a tough place in which to make a living. Thorns and thistles are everywhere, resisting and retarding our efforts. Indeed, every task, every job, every profession or trade, even every effort at leisure has a certain irreducible quotient of what we might sum up as crap. <laughs> absurdity, don't you like it when an ethicist, ethicist uses that word? Uh, absurdity, waste, vulnerability, uncertainty, disappointment, frustration, exploitation, and the like. Almost everything is harder than it should be. This is a way of putting what God shows us here, Genesis 3. We were made to rule over creation, but now it rules over us. We're separated, lost from God, from ourselves, from others, and from creation. Hearts lost, systems broken, planet lost. What can be done about it? What would God do? Number four, he shows us, thankfully, at the moment of our greatest catastrophe, there's hope. That's who our God is. Number four, there's a seed here. <laughs> Imagine for a moment, the world is kind of like a watch, like an expensive watch, handcrafted, immaculately working, flawlessly constructed, impeccably designed. It works amazingly. But imagine if one of the gears, crucial gear inside it, were to break and were to fall down into the inside of all the other gears and levers in the watch. What would happen? Woo, you know instantly things will begin to deteriorate things would be uh, begin to grind maybe there's like a like a burning uh, things would be all mucked up what could you do at this point you could perhaps discard the watch but you've made it you love it you care for it so you decide you want to repair it how could you do that to repair it you'd have to go inside the watch and put a brand new gear where the first one was broken and in a similar way, that's exactly what God is promising here he is going to do one day. He's saying someday someone new is going to come into the world and fix 
it all. Because after he speaks to Eve, he speaks to Adam, he speaks to creation. Oh, he turns and God looks full in the face of evil. Doesn't let it get away with it. And he says to the serpent, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. It's the word seed, your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first seed of what Christians call the gospel because all the way back then, even in Genesis, before we could even understand what he meant, God is promising that there's going to come someone who won't have a pain-free life, won't have an untainted existence by evil. God is saying, there's someone I'm going to send into the world from people, through people. He's going to come and taste evil, but he himself, though he's struck, he will crush the evil. And the rest of the Bible, friends, is all about that. It's all about the story of the seed. And if you ever want to know at any point, why is this passage in there? Why is that part or person or psalm or whatever in there? Ask, how does it connect to the seed? That's what the whole thing's about. It's about the seed. And Jewish people, they were taught this for centuries. And for century after century, Jewish women, oh, they would ask. They would have children and wonder, is this the one? Is he the one? Is this the, the seed God has promised who would end all evil? the hope of Genesis 3. One day, flash forward, one Jewish girl named Mary wondered, and she could say yes, because Mary had a seed unlike any other seed. She had Jesus, the truer, capital S, seed, a truer son of Adam and offspring of Eve, and he grew up. Yes, he was bruised. He was crushed, it says, for our iniquities by his wounds and death, and through his resurrection, we can be healed the day he fulfilled Genesis 3, came to end the evil, and like the gear in the watch, he was put in place to turn back the clock. Revelation says one day he'll come again to make all things new. At the end of the book, The Silver Chair, maybe you've read of the book by C.S. Lewis, children's fantasy story in The Silver Chair. There's this amazing part, this great story that illustrates this perfectly. In the story, there's two children named uh, Jill and Eustace, and they've gone into Narnia, into this um, uh, fantasy land, and they've come to the burial of the great King Caspian, whom they knew when he was younger, this beloved hero, the greatest King Narnia has ever known, and he's died, and he's being buried in all of Narnia, and Aslan himself, the great lion and Christ figure, has come to bury Caspian and weep for their loss. But something incredible happens in the face of death at the moment of the burial, and this is how the story ends. I'm going to read it to you. It says, they were walking beside the stream And the lion went before them. And he became so beautiful and the music so despairing that Jill did not know which of them was that filled her eyes with tears. Then Aslan stopped. And the children looked into the stream and on the golden gravel of the bed of the stream lay King Caspian dead. With the water flowing over him like liquid glass, his long white beard swayed in it like water weed. And all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept. Great lion tears. Each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. Son of Adam, said Aslan, Go into that thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. Eustace obeyed. The thorn was a foot long and as sharp as a rapier. Drive it into my paw, son of Adam, said Aslan, holding up his right forepaw and spreading out the great pad towards Eustace. Must I, said Eustace. Yes, said Aslan. 
Then Eustace set his teeth and drove the thorn into the lion's paw. And there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all redness you've ever seen or imagined. And it splashed into the stream and washed over the dead body of the king. At the same moment, the sad music stopped. And the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray and from gray to yellow and got shorter and vanished altogether. And his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh and the wrinkles were smooth and the eyes were open and his eyes and lips both laughed. And suddenly he leapt up and stood before them now a very young man. And he rushed to Aslan and flung his arms as far as they would go round the huge neck. And he gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king. And Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. And I want you to know that if you're a Christian today, if your faith and trust are in Jesus to redeem you as your seed, then this moment, that moment is yours. It's yours as surely as I'm with you today because that's the evil that will one day be defeated. The Bible calls death the final enemy and one day because of the seed who has come and will come again. It'll be defeated in your life and all things will be made new. See, all is not lost at our moment of our greatest failure, at our greatest catastrophe. Here God still comes to us in our weakness and brokenness and absolute failure and betrayal and he says, I haven't given up on you. All is not lost. There's still hope because of the seed because of this how does the oh the great hymn puts it like this one day raised uh, like him like him we will rise ours the cross the grave the skies even all the pains get turned into a praise see and it all becomes ours when we repent when we turn away from being our own ruler like Eve did, like Adam did. And we said, God, forgive me for not trusting your heart, for believing the sneer and the shadow. Forgive me for ruling my own life. Would you come and be king? I want to tell you, my life was changed. The 19-year-old college freshman, University of Houston, when I quit thinking the Bible was all about my failure and keeping up some ridiculous thing I couldn't keep up anyway. And I surrendered my heart. I gave my will to him. I said, would you come in and be king? Not, not just friend or barista. Would you be my Lord? At that moment, oh, the seed came in. I was born again of an incorruptible seed. And things began to change from the inside out. Habits of sin I'd had for years. The brokenness, the addictions, they began to unravel. Like the clock working backward. The same can be true for you, of you today.